This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Hey friends, welcome back to The Scandal of Reading. Claudacho here with Austin Cardi. Uh, our beloved friend Jessica uh, is not here on this episode. Her and her family are transitioning as she's getting ready to begin her work at Pepperdine, so we're excited about that. We do have a great combo uh, coming up with Tiffany Kreiner on the novel La Rose, which is a phenomenal novel. Really excited uh, about that discussion. But first, we're going to sort of prep and set the table by talking about peace, that's the fruit of the spirit that we're covering this time around. And I want to start actually just with the story about peace. Uh, prior to being here in Virginia and serving at the church where I'm uh, based now, I had the privilege of being in Memphis and serving there for uh, a handful of years. One of my greatest accomplishments in life in ministry happened in Memphis, and it happened in Target, and it happened near the bike aisle. And it happened while I was looking for Legos for my kids. And it happened when I realized and I heard some shouting that an employee and a customer were going at it. And they were um, not happy with each other is a way to put it mildly. And I noticed just around the corner um, looking that nobody else was around. It was just me and them. And as they started to um, get closer and to start shouting at each other and to start calling each other's names, I could see in the employee's eyes, the sort of like wisdom flashing across for a second that he was realizing I should really walk away from this. And yet as the customer kept yelling at him and kind of egging him on, like, Hey, you're going to do something. You're just going to walk away. He could not resist the bait. So the employee moves towards the customer and they're getting ready to have a fight in the middle of target. And it's them and me. And i step a little bit closer and I just say, Hey guys, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Let's like just chill. And uh, somehow uh, that I cut through uh, their their passion and they walked away. I walked the employee back to the front and he thanked me. They said, man, it wasn't worth it. Like you did well, like great job walking away. And when I think about peace, uh, I think about that moment. I think about um, sort of pouring uh, cold water on the flames of anger and conflict and removing conflict. But um, if we know the Bible well, we know that peace is more than just the absence of conflict. It has it has a fuller sort of idea. So Austin, when you think about peace, what's that sort of uh, fuller notion of peace biblically that my sort of little story just begins to gesture at? Well, your sort of little story is a wonderful story. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great one. I hope you include that as an illustration in a book sometime. Uh, yeah, that points to the biblical concept of shalom, that uh, as you just said, and it's an important day to actually be referencing this line because as we record, we are right now uh, upon Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And uh, the biblical notion of peace, the, the the concept of shalom is not simply about the absence of conflict. It's about the presence of justice and flourishing for, for all. Um, and any conversation about peace can't reduce it to just simply the absence of hostilities. It has to be about some sort of work and uh, arrived at flourishing. 
And, um, you know, when I think about peace, too, I, I think about it as one of the many great uh, expressions and experiences of uh, Christian faith and, 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 and human living. And by that, I mean, and I'm, I'm most aware of this because uh, not only are we right now leading into Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we've just come out of Christmas. And one of the things I love about Christmas is that for me, the the spirit that is most evoked, the the, the tone uh, that the worship service takes place in, the register that it's set in, the feeling everybody leaves with is one of peace. And I contrast that with uh, the euphoria of Easter. And I love Easter. We love that. This is not to compare one and say one's supposed to be better than the other. It's just I don't think we oftentimes look at how uh, different aspects of the liturgical season uh, highlight different feelings and different emotions. Um, and Christmas is a time where folks just leave peacefully, whereas one leaves a, an Easter service euphoric, uh, high, excited. Um, and one of the reasons, I think, to land this plane, uh, one of the reasons I think that's true of, of Christmas is it's a time where uh, hostilities just dissipate for a moment. Uh, folks come together and anger and, and, and conflict and things are momentarily put aside and folks are just at, at peace because there's something bigger that has brought everybody to this moment. And so then for this brief moment, it's not only just that these hostilities have quelled, you actually at these services or when families come back together, you see some sort of reconciliation taking place. Now, how long those last is always up for a longer conversation. But in that brief moment, we get a picture, I think, of the shalom that that we're talking about here. That's a that's a really helpful um, image and illustration. And I think it also points to that this sort of peace is not is not easily realized. Um I'm thinking in particular with this conversation on LaRose um, that folks are about to listen in on, you know, peace is hard earned. Peace um, takes a, it takes a risk, right? There, there's a risk in, in seeing uh, relationships restored and reconciled to see sort of the experience of Shalom happening um, in our lives. It, there's, there's a cost um, involved, right, to, um, to do this. And, and we, we touch on that as we get into the novel. Um, I know I mentioned at the top that Jessica uh, would not be on, but somehow by a miracle, um, we have been restored to the fullness uh, of, our, of our being. Um, what began with two will end in three. Jessica, do you have any thoughts on peace? <laughs> Thank you. No, I'm really, I, this is a great way to start your morning, be able to hear you guys wax eloquent on a virtue. I, I was thinking when you were talking, Austin, I, I wish that peace was a virtue people practiced instead of, you know, the Hallmark movies and the Christmas movies show us that that's what people are doing. And maybe it was just me, but I felt like there were so many people not at peace this last year because they weren't even thinking of it as a practice. They were thinking of something that you just receive, that you only get and not something that you have to practice. But one of the reminders we get from literature when we see people who are truly at peace, 
who are not constantly busy, who don't fret, who don't lose their head when crises happen. When we see those characters mm -hmm. in literature, the ones who are, are practicing peace, it reminds us that it really is something that we have to have as a habit in order for it to be a virtue that we embody. That, that is really helpful because actually one of the things that will come up in this discussion on LaRose is sort of peace on these different levels. So I think we, you know, with my target example, this sort of interpersonal peace, right? Um, this kind of peace between parties. We know obviously the story of the world, though, is a cosmic story. The story of the gospel is a cosmic story. So there's peace. Christ is going to reconcile all things, all creation, heaven and earth uh, to himself through his cross and his resurrection. So there's peace on that sort of cosmic level. But then as you're talking about, Jessica, as well, there's sort of this in internal individual kind of like equilibrium, this sort of settledness, the security, the stability that we uh, have uh, within us and we live out of and we practice and we cultivate, or we can really um, feel its absence where we're sort of uh, deeply frantic um, on at the level of like our heart and our being. And, um, you know, we were made for peace at, in each of those ways. And, um, and they're obviously connected as well, right? Um, communities need peace. We need peace individually and our world needs peace. So those are, um, those are these sort of different textures for, uh, for this, for this great need that God provides and that we're supposed to enact. Um, Jessica, go for it. Yeah. Just add one more thing. So that, that verse that's often quoted and put on Hobby Lobby posters, be still and know that I am God. One of the best readings I had of that was Edith Stein this last year. I was reading her essays on woman. And she talks about women being still. And at first I was kind of affronted because regularly you hear these talks from women in the 1930s, like be quiet. <laughs> and so when I heard be still, I was like, what do you mean? Like, I don't want to be quiet. That's, you know, actually my voice matters. And instead thinking about it as peace, that's what she was trying to say. She was saying we have to be at peace and that peace comes from the other part of that verse, knowing that he is God, right? Knowing that he's the one that's asleep in the boat to use the Bible story example, when the storm is raging, that constant assurance of who he is, is a, a practice of being still because mm -hmm. we know he's God. That's a good, that's a good final word um, to close us. Thank you for making your guest surprise appearance. Uh, that will, this will be delightful for everyone who's listening. Um, yes. <laughs> oh, in, enrich, <laughs> take us to a higher level, Jessica. So good. Um, and what also is good friends is the conversation to follow on La Rose with Tiffany Kreiner. Uh, stick around. If you enjoy share it, um, pick up the novel. It's worth your time and enjoy this conversation. Well, hey, friends, I am with Tiffany Kreiner. I'm so excited for this conversation. Uh, but first, I want to introduce uh, Tiffany properly. Uh, Tiffany Kreiner is Associate Professor of English at Wheaton College. She's a coordinator of the Equitas Fellows Program in the Public Humanities and Arts. She's a co-farmer at Root and Sky Farm in Northern Illinois. And she is the author, most recently, of In Thought, Word, and Seed, Reckonings from a Midwest Farm, uh, a book that is delightful, and I encourage people to read it. It made my list of best books of 2023. Um, and that might not mean much to uh, some of you, but it really should because it is a wonderful book. Tiffany, it is a delight to have you on. Uh, thanks for joining us. I'm delighted. Thanks so much. Well, we're going to talk about uh, La Rose by Louise Erdrich. Um, I had never read a book from her. I'd seen uh, the line of novels in the stacks of at the library that she's written. And I just thought to myself, wow, this person wrote a lot of books. Great. And you recommended this to me uh, for this conversation on uh, peace slash reconciliation. And I was just blown away by this novel. Can you, uh, Tiffany, maybe first, before we really uh, dive in, 
Can you give a little bit of a sort of synopsis on this novel? And I'm hoping that this will sort of grab people, uh, moving them toward uh, picking up this text for themselves. Absolutely. Well, uh, the novel starts out really, really dramatically. And so what I'm about to say may sound like a spoiler, but I don't think it is because it's really on the first page. Um, The novel is set in North Dakota, right on the boundary between reservation land and not reservation land in Ojibwe country. Uh, And what happens when the novel opens is that Landro, a native man, is hunting and mistakenly shoots his neighbor's son. It's a horrific accident. It's a horrible situation, uh, which of course throws uh, his family, his neighbor's family, the whole community into a kind of chaos and deep trauma. Um, And the novel's uh, kind of uh, progression, it starts, you know, at the worst thing that could happen, right? You mistakenly kill your neighbor's son, your son gets killed. Um, these sort of horrible situations. It starts at the very worst. Um, and through the course of the novel, we're kind of encountering the question, can a community recover from a brokenness this deep, this hard? Uh, and the way that the novel thinks through that question um, is one, again, that is actually talked about in the synopses of the novel, so it doesn't seem like too much of a spoiler to say that uh, Landro offers his son... LaRose to his neighbor's family uh, to adopt um, and to kind of join their family uh, in a kind of informal way uh, for a long period of time. And LaRose functions between the families as a kind of way through the difficult times. And so the question becomes, you know, can, can they heal? Can something like this work? It's the most audacious solution. Um, possible, but not one without historical precedent, as um, Erdrich writes in her afterward uh, to the text. But uh, it's a powerful, rich exploration of what it means to try to recover after really, really hard things. And I think this novel is so um, powerful, and it offers uh, a really sort of potent um, kind of model or or method of teaching thinking about this theme of peace uh, or reconciliation. You know, we've been going through this season pairing texts with the fruit of the spirit. And peace um, sometimes really feels flat when we think about that in, in, um, in, in Galatians 5, when the Apostle Paul is writing about peace. Uh, but there's this fullness to peace that comes from the Old Testament scriptures, obviously, Tiffany, as you know. And that's really the idea of shalom. And rather than simply peace, meaning the absence of conflict, it's this fullness of flourishing that exists on a couple different levels. One, the sort of communal kind of cosmic level, um, or really there actually, which is tied in directly to the novel, as you mentioned, but then on the sort of uh, individual level, the sort of uh, equilibrium within ourselves, this this flourishing, this um, the sort of settledness and belonging that we have within ourselves. And I think uh, this is not really fascinating because you see the the need for peace um, immediately, right, uh, with this tragedy that that launches the the novel, and then you see these different sort of methods toward peace at sort of the individual level, the communal level. And then there's questions of the sort of larger level of like, what's the world really like and how do we get through this? And you see different characters taking different um, sort of strategies, coping mechanisms, ways toward uh, some movement into this kind of peace, this flourishing, either communally or individually. Um, 
Where do you want to start? Because there's so there's so much here. Where do you want to start thinking about how LaRose offers us um, models of moving toward this kind of piece? Where, where do you want to jump in first? Well, I think starting at the beginning is always a really good place to start, as the sound of music reminds us. Uh, <laughs> but um, the, the reason, of course, is that when we read literature, the beginning is this like pressurized zone of meaning making. It offers, you know, clues the entire, it, you know, it really richly engages this. And what I love about the first couple of pages of the novel itself um, are the way that, you know, the dramatic action happens, the shot is taken, but right away that you know that this is a single act that is not single. It is connected to so many things. It's location, the relationships between the families, the history behind even the land itself mm -hmm. is part of the action that is happening. It is all sort of brought together. I wonder, I wonder if I could just even read a couple of That'd be uh, great. Yeah. sentences from it. Um, so the, this is the opening of the novel. Where the reservation boundary invisibly bisected a stand of deep brush, choke cherry, popple stunted oak, Landro waited. He said he was not drinking, and there was no sign later. Landro was a devout Catholic who also followed traditional ways, a man who would kill a deer, thank one god in English, and put down tobacco for another god in Ojibwe. He was married to a woman even more devout than he, and had five children, all of whom he tried to feed and keep decent. His neighbor, Peter Ravitch, had a big farm, cobbled together out of what used to be Indian allotments. He tilled the corn, soy, and hayfields on the western edge. He and Landro and their wives, who were half-sisters, traded eggs for ammo, rides to town, kids' clothing, potatoes for flour, that sort of thing. Their children played together, and they, although they went to different schools. This was 1999, and Ravitch had been talking about the millennium, how he was setting up alternate power sources, buying special software for his computer, stocking up on the basics. He'd even filled an old gasoline tank buried behind his utility shed. Ravitch thought that something would happen, but not what did happen. Now, I, this opening sounds like a sort of setting, right? It was a dark and stormy night um, uh, kind of thing, background <laughs> of the characters. But what it offers us is a, a sense of the, the history of the place, right? We're right on the border. There's history there about how land works. Peter Ravitch had bought up a bunch of Indian allotments. And so there's this kind of um, history about land and land use there, yet they're trading with one another, right? Mm. Um, they've married in, uh, into the same family, um, and they're kind of related, even though they may or may not want to be, right? Mm. Um, they uh, are in between religiously, um, and uh, they're in between land-wise, in between family-wise. And so whatever happens when a, a guy shoots his neighbor's son, this novel is saying, just so you know, it's a lot more complicated than that. And what that's what I love about thinking about mm. this level of reconciliation. You are never going to get very far in reconciliation if you think to yourself, if I need to say I'm sorry for pulling the trigger that way. Mm. Like if like that, that's not what we're talking about here. That's not enough to talk about mm. here. It's about the land boundary. It's about who's where. It's about what happened. It's about how the families are so connected, how the trading has worked and hasn't worked, the different schooling, right? Like everything is right mm -hmm. here in that first space. And it keeps going just as cool um, on onto the pages uh, mm -hmm. 
that ensue, but uh, that's lesson on page one. It's not. Yeah. And, and it's that context that then produces an act that maybe for the reader feels pretty staggering that Lanro and Emmeline, I believe is his, his wife's name, they're going to offer LaRose their son. And I think the line at, toward the end of that first chapter is, you know, my, my son will be your son now, or our son will be your son now. Mm-hmm. And they bring LaRose and they they offer him um, to uh, to the Ravages. And you know, this is a uh, this is jarring, and this is this is the way the novel really begins. And so you see this sort of this deep tragedy, and then this movement, this act to sort of try to reconcile with the recognition that nothing can um, undo what has been done, but there is still a movement to be um, to be enacted that can bring the community closer toward something whole. Um, I also have a random, a random question now appears in my mind. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, no punctuation um, is happening in this, which is a, which is a strange thing. Yeah. No quotation marks. Sorry. Not no punctuation. That would be very, very odd. Um, (laughs) Any, 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 this is, this is a tangent. Any comment on that? I thought I, when I was reading, I thought about something. I need to ask Tiffany about this. Um, Yeah. So the novel doesn't use quotation marks, um, which, um, we talked a lot about in class this time through and last time through actually. Um, and the students seem to think that the effect on them was um, an inability, like they had, they were so immersed in it because of the lack of quotation marks. They couldn't, um, you know, you can figure out when talking is happening, mm-hmm. work at it, but you do have to work at it. So that idea of needing to work at it means that you're actually trying harder to determine what is thought and what is speech. And it actually, um, I think, um, right away knits you into the narrative itself. Hmm. It makes you more absorbed into it. Um, we talked a lot about in narration, like uh, free indirect style or free indirect discourse, right? That way that a narrator shares the narrator's commentary on a thing um, with the reader by means of sort of telling you mm. what a character thinks or what, they, what they're doing, but does so in a way that inflects it so that you, you sort of know how you're supposed to think about it. And by removing direct discourse entirely from the novel mm. here, um, she doesn't, I think, allow us to judge without her. Hmm. Um, all right. Like we're right. We are knit into it. We have to think about it. Okay. What's happening here. Uh, and I, I think it creates a, a profound intimacy. Mm. What was yeah. your experience of it? I mean, I, I think it, it, it forced me to really pay it, pay attention. And I, and I think it, it was a sort of immersive tactic. It, I did feel really drawn into the text. It also, it made the story feel different than other books you know i'm used to seeing quotation marks so this this it made the story feel larger yeah. uh, i think in a way it also felt like oh like this is this sort of like legendary mm-hmm. like um you know sacred sort of tale like this this is not something i see all the time i think of cormac yeah. mccarthy as the other author that does this um mm-hmm. so it's sort of immersed and it sort of um uh enlarged the story i think to me it, mm-hmm. while making me attentive i think that intimacy phrase that you use is also really helpful um which which makes me think as well um, of LaRose as, um, you know, he's given to the family mm-hmm. and he enters and he becomes a sort of like 
um, locus of like kind of healing and, and, um, and meaning and people are drawn, you know, are drawn toward him. Um, what are we, what are we to like, what are we to make of how singular this like child is as sort of, um, his presence begins to help, you know, maybe setting uh, the stage a little bit for listeners. Um, he goes to, um, the Ravage family, um, Peter, uh, is the husband. Um, do you remember the name of the wife? Her name's escaping Nola. me. Nola. Nola. Nola, uh, Nola has some pretty, uh, obviously is, is deep within grief, having lost, uh, having lost her son. Peter is as well in his own way. And then, uh, Maggie, uh, one of their children is, um, yeah, she's struggling and she's, she doesn't know, um, you know, kind of how to operate. She lashes out. She has, um, problems at school. She has to defend herself, all these sort of things. LaRose's presence though, begins to, um, over time have this sort of healing effect, uh, on the family. What are, like what are we supposed to make of that? Um, how does that does that chart some way toward peace? Is that a sense? Uh, is there a sense in which this act of offering from Lanro and his family, um, just that act and that presence, is is beginning to bring healing? But there's also sort of a rich history of LaRose and that name and the heritage of native native people. So there's a lot of layers there. How how can readers? How can we begin to think about um, the role LaRose plays? Um, this fourth LaRose um, plays in the novel. Yes, yes, yes. So um, I think it maybe I want to tie my answer to your comment about paying attention. Um, Mm. That was created by the narrative technique of not using quotation marks. So um, it just so happens that not paying attention is what Landro thinks was the real sin that he committed, right? Mm. It was a terrible accident. He didn't mean it at all, obviously. But when he thinks about it a year into the story, he says it was that failure to pay attention that was the real problem. And so I think there's something mystically important about paying attention. And so I love the idea of the not quotation marks sort of playing into that. But what I think about about how that inflects the idea of LaRose is when you first think about this in a contemporary sort of situation, um, when I think about my baby, for example, right? And like, would I give up my baby to another family Mm. to try to make peace between our families? Uh, Even if it was, you know, my sister, uh, right? With Mm. uh, and Emmeline, our sisters. Um, So uh, the first response to that is a sort of deep offense, Mm. Like, are you kidding me? This is abusive to the child. Like, right. Mm. And and a lot of that comes out in conversation in class about this. This seems horrible. Why would you even consider this? Um, And so um, that first response to that action um, is on the one hand kind of right, right? Because it is a really, really big deal. Like this is a huge deal, but the novel's response is like, wait a second, simmer down, pay attention, pay mm. attention to what is happening here. Um, and the closer that you are into this, the more you have to kind of feel out and see out the way that it works. So for LaRose, you're absolutely right. He ha- First of all, he's the fourth uh, LaRose. He's a, uh, there's a LaRose in each generation or most of the generations, right? Um, and we get some of the backstory here. So this child is... Um, miraculous uh called i think Mm -hmm. it would be the way that i would use Mm -hmm. that term as a christian Uh, he's called in a specific way to be a healer all the laroses are healers they have these special spiritual powers that the novel details um beautifully right about sort of sending their spirits out 
um, of their bodies, um, participating in traditional ways, um, and so forth. So, so LaRose from his birth is called, his parents were not going to name him LaRose. And then he came out and he sort of seemed to demand the name. So I love that. And as a, especially as a Christian believer, I feel, um, like that's a move I can understand. Mm. Um, right. I can say like, Oh, that there's more to this than you would normally see, or there's more going on here. Um, that as a religious believer myself, like, Yep. Uh, I can buy that someone might be called uh, to a thing. So that that's a, a really important thing, I think, especially for secular readers uh, to sort of try to understand LaRose is called um, and children can be called. Yes. Right. Like, yeah. which I mean, again, as Christian believers, absolutely. Yeah. Um, right? <laughs> like you think about the prophets being called, et cetera. Right. The child prophets being called. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's a really important way, I think, to think mm. about the rose um, as someone who's involved. But I also think that making the rose so young um, in the novel is also really important. Back to that first point um, of how deep problems go, right? The novel's first page talks about um, how everything's involved. The land's involved, the families are involved. Um, the history and schooling is involved, um, national history, et cetera, is part of this one action that was an accident. Uh, in the same way, as we start thinking through how peace can be made between people, you know, um, mechanically it happens because LaRose goes back and forth like a, a needle mm -hmm. in thread, right? Mm -hmm. pitches mm -hmm. them back together, going back and forth between their houses. Um, but, um, like if we think about this as a sort of larger sense of what peacemaking can be, it's going to involve everybody. It's going to involve even the children. And LaRose mm -hmm. is not the only child who's deeply involved in saving um, and peacemaking here. Maggie herself uh, saves her mother's life. Um, mm -hmm. And um, Hollis uh, mm -hmm. uh, is deeply involved in the recovery of his father. Mm -hmm. um, throughout the, the source, even Josette and Snow bring the families mm -hmm. together by taking care of Maggie. Yeah. Um, and these wonderful, like these children are, first of all, a delight. It's a delight to participate in their world. Um, mm -hmm. as, we're, as readers, they're little um, spa days. They're like going out to yes. nice yeah. Um It's just really, even they're, you know, making of that key meal. Um, mm -hmm. uh, they're, it's wonderful to be with them. They are making this happen. Um, as their parents are so racked and, you know, coming to the end of themselves. Mm. Um, and I buy it. Uh, that is mm -hmm. to say, I buy the idea that children are part of this. I buy the idea that call is required um, and that even supernaturalness is required for reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, it, it, it is in fact clear uh, from the, in the world of the novel that a supernatural element is required for this healing to occur. Mm. That point about children is, is uh, I think, really, uh, really on point. It also makes me think of one of the key moments in the novel as well, where uh, LaRose begins in the Ravage's house to sort of take away every object that could be used uh, for to kill oneself, to death harm anything like that so he begins put like rat poison he's taking away you know ropes he's taking away and then he takes away uh he unloads very carefully um the uh the shells shotguns from um or the bullets from the guns and that plays a really important uh, moment uh later in the novel and it strikes me that you know 
when you're first reading that moment, I think in one sense, it feels really um, kind of naive. Like, oh, like this little kid thinks he's going to, you know, save people by like putting the rat, like, you know, throwing all the rat poison away, you know, so um, so everyone's going to be safe. No one's going to harm themselves. And but it's actually that sort of childlike you know, faith or this sort of determination, this care that he has and this belief that he he is able to make a difference. Um, and maybe it comes out of this sense of calling that you're talking about. Yes. It's that action that he takes with the full heartedness that does restore, um, that creates a sort of moment of restoration, um, this moment of kind of atonement. And it, it truly does bring the families back together before this leading up to this meal that concludes the novel. So I, th- I think that point about children and that this is reconciliation and peace is, is truly a community project. Um, I think really bears out, especially with, I would say, you know, that moment does feel like really in hindsight, having read the novel, it feels like a really kind of um, critical sort of plot point, right. That, that really is this catalyst for the rest of the story. Um, so I, th- I think that on children is really um, that observation is, is really key. Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard too to read right now, right? Um, a child doing those kinds of things. Um, especially my students found it extremely painful to think of mm. him with the scissors, to think of that him burying the knives in the backyard and doing those actions, being like, you shouldn't have to try to protect your mom's life or something like that. Like you shouldn't have to rescue your parents in this situation. Um, and on the one Which hand, is true. Right, it's like, true, but that's not. But that's also not like the world we live in, you know. Like this is, <laughs> this is like this is this is the way things are, you know. Like totally. <laughs> I mean, in that situation, would a child be glad to to be able to help when things are so bad, even if they have to go to therapy later on? It, yeah, mm. I think so. Right, like, um, and again, you're you're right. It shouldn't have to be that way, but in order to get through in order to get to flourishing in order to get to peace everybody's allowed to be involved welcome to it when necessary to be involved yeah and i remember being a child um in the united states and thinking to myself like i want to do something right or something like that so that so i don't think it's Mm -hmm. only just oh they're growing up too fast i mean i we know about child um you know activists making a difference in the world already and so Mm -hmm. on and so forth um, there is a hunger to be involved. You know, my, yeah, my prefrontal cortex might not be fully developed, but I still know some things. Uh, I know knives can hurt and I don't want them, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. Yeah, it does strike me, yeah, that, you know, that that LaRose believes he can make a difference, that he desires to make a difference, that he hungers, makes you think of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, all of these things. And he he acts on that. And that becomes uh, becomes really pivotal. And I think you're right. You know, one of my favorite things about the novel was just how sort of just fully realized and authentic each of the characters felt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like it just it just felt real. Like I was really with them. And I think uh, so many of those those kids, those teens, they are they are taking the action that they know to take that um, is going to bind 
bind them to one another in a way that is going to bring this sort of healing. Uh, at the same time, there is a character that begins to try to unravel, right, the piece that is emerging in the novel. And I have to say, this is maybe the character that I found most fascinating, the character Romeo, uh, mm-hmm. who grew up with Lanro. They spent time uh, at this sort of boarding school. They end up um, they end up running away, and that results in tragedy that leaves Romeo um, deeply uh, resentful, leaves him physically scarred and damaged as well. Uh, and it changes the whole trajectory of his life, uh, leads him on a path toward addiction and substance abuse. And he feels that Lanro is never sufficiently um, repentant or sorry. Uh, he doesn't really recognize uh, what Romeo did to save him and what it, what it costs Romeo. Um, but, you know, there is... The other thing that I found fascinating is the novel works in flashbacks to sort of um, uh, create a sort of sympathetic and a fuller understanding of Romeo's condition. We first meet him, and he's a character that's pretty easy to sort of um, dislike and detest. Then we kind of realize what's happening. And there's one of the moments I just I really loved. I'm going to read uh, just a portion of this. and this is describing the burgeoning friendship between Romeo and Landro um, at the boarding school. And uh, Romeo, you know, Romeo was kind of um, kind of an outcast until Landro shows up. And Romeo was the boy that was known that he would always like pee the bed. He was a peer. Um, mm-hmm. And you can imagine, you know, the shame and embarrassment that comes from that, you know, when you're sleeping in a room with, you know, 15 other kids and everybody mm-hmm. knows. Um and so when Lenro shows up, um, they tell him like, "Hey, don't uh, don't sleep under Romeo. Like he might like he's gonna drip on you, man. Like he's gonna pee." Mm-hmm. And Lenro, um, and I love this line. It says, uh, "But Lenro looked at Romeo. This is on page one fifty seven. But Lenro looked at Romeo, gave an open, friendly smile, and said, "Nah, he looks steady. I'll sleep under.'" Um, and then it goes on to say, Romeo was flooded with a piercing sensation that started as surprise, became pleasure, and then, if he'd known what to call it, joy. No boy had ever stood up for him. No boy had ever grinned at Romeo like he might buddy up with him. He had no brothers, no cousins at school, no connections at home except a dubious foster aunt. This moment with Lanro was so powerful that its impact lasted days. And it got better. Lanro never wavered. Because Lanro called him steady, Romeo became steady. Um, because Lanro, Romeo stood straighter, got stronger, ate more, even grew. Uh, and, and it goes on. And I just love that line. Because Lanro called him steady, Romeo became steady. Um, I just, I mean, that just melted my heart when I read that. Um, and I think that is another, although they have a fallout um, that that has to be that has to be mended. I think that's another moment of, to me, of sort of this, this sort of uh, invasion of peace that comes unexpectedly that sort of shoots up from this connection between these two boys, uh, this, this trust, this, this faith, this sort of speaking over somebody before they've ever, you know, really even earned it or done anything to me, it's such an echo of, you know, what we believe in the Christian gospel, that this word is spoken over us before we've ever made a movement toward it at all or done anything to merit it. It's just spoken. Uh, and I just, I just love that. Um, that, that was just so powerful. And I think that that shows, uh, how we can, move toward peace, right? I think this sort of, um, this declaration, this embrace mm-hmm. that comes before it's even deserved. So what, what do you make of that moment? What do you make of um, Romeo and his journey as a character as a whole? 
Yeah, no, I love that moment too. It's deeply underscored in my <laughs> in my book <laughs> uh, too. But I think that you know, there's a, a bunch of ways to think about the fully realized cast that you're talking about. Mm. Characters. One is that everybody in this book has a serious downside to them, right? Um, uh, even the characters we love so much, like say Emmeline or something like that, who's given her whole career and life, mm. uh, the community and so on, has a moment where she slaps her child and then mm. falls immediately into this horrible repentance, right, mm-hmm. uh, uh, about it. And so everybody has a thing. I mean, maybe Snow and Joe's that don't, but um, almost every maybe the Rose, but um, but. Uh, these fully complex characters have a lot of difficulty in their lives. Uh, their neighbors know them and their crankinesses. Um, some of the darkest characters um, also have these sort of powerfully redeeming qualities. Um, that complexity of person is a hallmark of Erdrich's fiction, right? Um, she is actually known for being... Um, her fiction was used one time to test whether fiction can help develop ethical sensibilities in people. And it turns out, yes, it can. And it was her, <laughs> her text was the, te- was the test text of literary fiction. Um, and it absolutely, uh, you can sort of feel um, the ability to um, wholesale dismiss people diminishing mm-hmm. as the novel goes forward, mm-hmm. which is another requirement of peace. Mm-hmm. Right. So Landru in that moment, now nah, he looks steady. Like that's a transcendent moment where you're like projecting mm-hmm. into the future, where you're sort of saying like, you, I see the glory in you. Right. And like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a kind of an amazing calling that a person has, but in a smaller way, the diminishment of the ability to let someone entirely go mm-hmm. um, to sort of write them off entirely um, is uh the way toward the power of naming that you're sort of offering um, or, or sort of remarking here as that kind of, again, a child's gift, right? To mm-hmm. the mother. Um, so when I think about the way the novel works overall, even a character like, for example, uh, Buggy, um, um. who is terrifying, terrifying mm-hmm. character, um, by the end, you have this horrible realization of what has gone into him. And like, even that, like the sort of virulent hatred that you would like to attach to a character that has been so damaging in the novel sort of crumbles in the face of what it has become, a hollowed out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, And uh, so all that to say, I'm regularly moved by the way that Erdrich's characterization refuses to reduce people um, to the worst. Mm. Now, I did read an interview one time that said that Erdrich actually regretted her decisions about making Romeo's journey end the way that it did. Okay. Um, Now, I... That, you know, it's one of those offhand comments in a in an interview uh, in one of the editions there, um, wondering if it was realistic enough or something like that. But that said, like, I don't even mind. Like, I don't mind the regret, but I also yeah. don't mind the way that it went, the, the belief that it would require 
to end it that way. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, one's hope can wax and wane. I don't want to give away yeah. too much for the for the audience. Yeah, well, right. yeah, and and for readers too. I think what happened. So with Romeo, there is a moment, and there's a there's a complicated. You mentioned Tiffany. The complications of each character was part of how they're fully realized. Like they're really, you know, you can see the sort of glory in them as human beings, but and, and but you also at the same time see this this real sort of bentness, right? That that we know obviously personally, and you see that particularly in one character. I think as well, uh, Father Travis, the priest that's there, mm-hmm. and. And, um, you know, Romeo has this sort of, he hatches a a plot to sort of try to undo Landro and the family. And as that's um, bearing its sort of poisonous fruit, he has an encounter with uh, Father Travis that's sort of unexpected, goes in an unexpected way. And it leads to the sort sort of, um, the kind of a parallel moment of Romeo's sort of tragedy in the same sort of physical way that ends up being... um, uh, the, this this sort of redemptive kind of move, and it is um, it is the sort of thing that I think in a decontextualized setting you might be like that that would never happen. That's not realistic. But I think in the world of the, of the novel, like you can you can you can see it. it you it's 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 real. It it, it feels earned. It feels um, it feels natural. It feels right. And I think it um, it it does underscore. I think the point you're drawing out about peace and reconciliation that we can never really write somebody off completely, you know, um, that there is still, um, there is still a hope and a dignity that, that remains, even if it feels like it remains by, by a thread. Um, so, you know, to me, I, I, I really likened that sort of ending, particularly around the meal to beloved. Uh, it really reminded me of, mm-hmm. uh, uh, of that sort of, the sort of supernatural, um, redemption that comes and not a redemption that washes away all sort of suffering but a redemption that comes in the midst of that pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm with it all the, all the way um, and, and totally embrace it. How, I wonder maybe for the last word, could you, could you speak to how, um, how this novel is, even though it's, it's really difficult, could you speak to um, how this novel is important for us right now uh, at a time where, um, you know, culturally, societally, especially as America, like we've just, we're, we've just been through a lot. Can you, can you speak to why this novel, you know, has something for us and maybe at the same time, um, you know, what the novel has meant to you, maybe how you came across it first and how it's been a part of your story. Totally. Well, so, um, this book, uh, mysteriously appeared in my mailbox, um, several years ago, just when it had come out. The publisher, I think, sent it to the office, but I don't know why. There was no, like, I wasn't teaching a class where it would be appropriate, et cetera. It was mysteriously there. And so I tucked it. It's beautiful, right? I tucked it um, onto the shelf and just let it sit there for a while. And I remembered um, it years later when, um, actually, it was 2021 uh, when I first read it. I had just, we had all just come through and we weren't through it yet, right? We had all just come through a really super intense year with the pandemic And I had just been running a conference about race and literature um, that was fully online. And so I was basically the sort of man behind the curtain, um, you know, trying to run this conference. I was super exhausted. And, you know, the papers were good. The conference was rich. But, you know, like it left you with a sense of ongoing, like, yeah, it's really hard. And the evidence uh, is, you know, the ending on a hopeful note is is often quite difficult, right, Uh, in that situation. So, you know, it was the end. There's no one in the office because it's a remote conference. There I am packing up. I'm like, you know what? Oh my gosh, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I'm so tired. 
I'm just going to go get something to eat. Let me just pull a book off the shelf to read. And it was right then that this book, I mean, it called from the shelf. It was mm. right there. It was for such a time as this. Um, and I read it in a moment of absolute exhaustion related and, and honestly, not very much hope about race in the United mm. States um, in that academic context. We'd been exploring it so thoroughly that, you know, I was pretty thoroughly disheartened, honestly. Um, and so uh, to read it at that moment of real exhaustion, I think opened my heart to it in a way that, mm. you know, other times and places might not have been right. There are a lot of hard things. How could you give your son away? There's abuse mm. here. There's sort of triggers that, you know, if your content warnings about suicide ideation mm -hmm. and so on and so forth, like it's super intense to read. I think you said this heart will, or this book will break your heart and then mend it. Mm. Um, mm. And so it was, it was sort of, you know, it's full of difficult things, but in a space of utter worn outness and even like, you know, touching on despair about race in the United States um, and what to do, what to do, what to do, right? Because there are plenty of things that tell you about the problem. So many things that tell you about yeah. the problem. Um, where is there a step toward any kind of hope or healing? Um, and this book came off the shelf mysteriously at that moment. Um, and I... I knew that I needed it right then. And I believe that it offers, mm. I'm a careful reading. If you pay attention, I believe it offers so many insights to the journey and path forward. It's going to involve acknowledgement of history. It's going to involve everybody. Children are called to, it's going to be miraculous, you know, miracles required. Mm -hmm. uh, here. And it's going to take, um, commitment it's going to take time it's going to take action and it's going to involve and you know we haven't talked about this but it's going to involve mistakes mm. right um and so i i would have been so helped by it um and i, I believe that it can offer us something powerful mm. that is a great last word tiffany thank you for being generous with your time and your insights um and i do hope folks uh it, it really is a it is a is a potent novel i hope you'll pick it up, uh, give it, uh, give it a read, read it with some friends, uh, discuss if you do read it or as you're reading along, you have questions, uh, reach out to us, send us a message. We'd, we'd love to interact in that particular way. Um, Tiffany, how can people uh, stay up to date on, uh, on your work and on your writing? Uh, if they, if they would like to do, do that, I, I would imagine some folks are, are going to want to do that. So how can they stay in the loop with you? Absolutely. Um, so Legion has lots of stuff about my current activities, life on the farm, articles in the latest magazine and so on. Um, so just to Google, we'll get you there. Wonderful. Thanks, Tiffany. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.